we have been moving through the story of Scripture, the story of God, uh, how he has revealed himself as king uh, in a variety of circumstances throughout Israel's history, from uh, creation uh, to uh, flood to the calling out of Abram uh, from amongst the nations uh, to be a light and a hope to the nations uh, divided and separated uh, by sin. His rescue of Israel from Egypt, his establishment of the nation of Israel within the promised land and the calling of the king to lead and to direct and as the promise of the one who would ultimately come, uh, who is king overall. Last week we looked at the prophetic message and in particular the prophetic message of grace and hope and forgiveness that God offers. Now, as we moved through these narratives, through these stories, through these messages that we've encountered, one of the things that uh, has that's often on my mind is what's going on in the everyday life of Israelites in these times. I mean, we we, we read about the leaders, you know, the kings and the judges and the prophets. We we read about those individuals. We read about um, their endeavors and their messages and their struggles. But what about the everyday Israelite? What are they experiencing? What are they uh, encountering in this time? And, and truth be told, as, as I've studied and as I've looked, much of their life was much like ours. They, they worked. They played. They had family time. They had entertainment sources. They had you know the, the types of things that uh, take up our time. Um, and they also worshipped. And this morning, I, I want to take a look at uh, the King, God, in everyday life. What that looked like. Uh, what that was a, a part of uh, in terms of Israelite thought and Israelite practice. And I want to do that by looking at the two elements that really don't fit into uh, the rest of the Old Testament. They, they're, they're kind of their own little section, and that's the Psalms and the Wisdom Text. Um, so we're going to be looking at, at, at little elements from, from uh, what were Psalms and from uh, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes to try and get some insight into how God would have us live our everyday life in the midst of our work and our play and our entertainment and our family time and these other things. What are, what are some guiding principles that... Uh, should direct us. And the, the first thing I want us to see is that wisdom and worship, they, they, they go together. Okay? Uh, they, they're in, in the Hebrew text, they're part of what's called the writings, they're, they're, their own segment uh, in that sense. But they, they go to, together in, in very real and powerful ways as well. Worship helps us actively place God in his proper position. When we come here and we sing his praises or when we bow our heads in prayer and we, we acknowledge the, the awesome acts of God, the, the awesome uh, role of God in our lives, and we see that and we rehearse that and we express that, we put God in his proper position in our lives. He's already there. We're just acknowledging that in terms of what we do. This, this is, I think, expressed most most vividly in, in Psalm 22.3 that says, 
Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. The psalmist there says what? He says, our praises enthrone you. Our praises put you in that position of king. And that's really where our life has to begin. It's where our day has to begin. It's where our day has to continue. It's where our day has to uh, uh, end. It's with God on the throne. And I don't know of any element beyond worship that, that accomplishes that. And, and that feeds right into wisdom because wisdom helps us to, to live our life and, and helps us to, to have uh, the, the long view of life. Wisdom helps us to, to operate appropriately. Wisdom is the, the idea, it's the concept of success in life. And so worship and wisdom together help us to, to, to gain a, a holistic perspective. We've looked at Psalm 73 in the past. It says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I what? Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Our worship and the wisdom that comes from it helps us to, to have a perspective of life that is that is appropriate, that is healthy, that is balanced. So wisdom, then in fact, it helps us to, to live. When we, when we hear from Jesus that uh, we have abundant life, that that's what he offers us, how is that carried out? It's carried out through the lens of wisdom. And so wisdom and worship, they, they, they go together to to, to bring us through life, to bring us through this journey, through this, this task that we live and that we experience. So let's dig into these just a little bit more. Let's dig into to worship and to, to wisdom just a little bit more to, to gain, I think, some, some insights about how that plays out exactly in our life. Worship is a part of, of our everyday life. It's a part of our existence. It's a part of our experience. When we sing songs to God, when we sing songs about His greatness, about His goodness, about His power, and about His majesty, we realize who He is and who we are. And, and I, I want you to, to think about this, how big a role songs play in your everyday life. Not, not necessarily worship songs, just, just music in general. What role does music play in your life? Well, I would imagine uh, if you're a couple, then you probably have your song. You know, that song that you identify with as, as who you are as a, as a couple. That was there, you know, at the beginning. That was part of your journey. The, the song that reminds you of, of those big moments. You also have songs that remind you of, of those moments of loss, perhaps. You know, you, you lose somebody, or you lose something, or you lose a job, and there's a certain song that's, that's playing on the radio as you're going home that day, or as you're just relaxing that day. And that song, every time you hear it, you're, you're taken back to that moment. You know. 
you think of it in terms of our, our entertainment and music that, that's part of the movies we watch and so forth. Um, soundtracks play a big role in the, the emotions you feel as you're watching a movie. You know, songs, music plays a, a big part of, of our mood, of our attitude, of our outlook, of our perspective. And the Psalms are no different. The Psalms are a big part of the lives of Israel and, and are a big part of, of our lives. There's a reason why when you have groups such as the Gideon and so forth, they, they hand out the little New Testament, right? And there's always what along with the New Testament? There's the Psalms. None of the rest of the Old Testament's there, which, whatever. <laughs> as an Old Testament prof, I kind of, on that. But none of the rest of the Old Testament's there, but the Psalms are there. Why? Because the Psalms can play such a big part of our life. They, they can help us to, to understand things. And, and this, is, this is apparent even in, in the ordering of the Psalms. When you look at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and if you have your Bibles open real quickly there to, to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, you, you see something um, significant there. Psalm 1 is how happy or how blessed is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of the sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. And he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. And then Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them with his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king of Zion, my holy mountain. And it goes on. What do those two psalms deal with? Those two psalms deal with evil. But evil from the two basic ways that impact us. Psalm 1 is what? Evil and our struggle with it on an individual basis. Blessed are we as individuals as we walk in the way that God has plotted out, as we turn away from evil. And then Psalm 2 is what? Evil on a national basis. That as the nations rage, as the nations act, as the nations carry out their tasks, we see, we understand that God's still on his throne. The very first two psalms set the stage for, for everything else we're going to understand and we're going to see and we're going to encounter in the psalms. They, they tell us as an individual and as a nation, as part of a nation, we need to acknowledge God's authority. We see examples right now of of nations raging, as the psalmist would put it. Acting out, plotting out different realities and trying to assert their authority and their greatness and their power. In the midst of that, in the midst of, of dealing with that, confronting that, living with that, we need to understand that God is still on His throne. 
He's still in control. And the Psalms, in their order, they remind us of that, both individually and corporately. That's a big part of our lives. That's a big part of our mindset and how we live each day. We also see that Psalms play out in terms of thankfulness. Psalm 118, 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. In the midst of the difficulties we face in a fallen world, the hurt we experience, the pain we go through, it's important for us to, to realize that God's love is still present. It's important for us to, to, to center in on that truth and to, to walk in that truth and, and to live out a life of thankfulness even when we don't necessarily feel like our experience leans into that at the very moment we're in. There's also songs of sorrow. In fact, the majority of the Psalter are songs of sorrow. One-third of all the Psalms are laments, expressions of grief. You have cries such as, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. Psalm 31.9 Or Psalm 42.3 My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Or Psalm 13, 1 and 2, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have my sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Grief is a part of life. And we mourn. In a fallen world, there's going to be times of mourning. There's going to be sorrow. There's going to be grief. But the difference, one of the differences between our sorrow and our grief and, and that of the world is that we know who's in control. And we have someone we can go to with our grief. Someone we can cry out to. Someone who's big enough to, to take those expressions and, and to, to turn them, to, to change them over time into expressions of praise and hope. The Psalms, as part of Israel's worship, tell us that, that their life was very much like our life. It was times of joy and times of pain. It was times of learning and times of, of, of praise and worship. They help us to see that not much has changed. And just as they found hope, we can find hope. Wisdom, too, plays a role in our everyday life in helping us to deal with the, the truths of God and how those apply to our biggest questions. Wisdom starts with the answer that 
is part of every other question. That's, that's part of a response to every other issue we face. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. That proverb tells us that, that as we live our lives, as we face these questions, as we deal with the struggles, the doubts, the fears that we have, that the fear of the Lord must be the starting point for dealing with those. It's the beginning of knowledge. And that being the beginning of knowledge suggests both it, it's where knowledge begins to take place, it's where, we, where the lessons begin to be learned, but it's also that it's the foundation for all other knowledge. That as we learn things, as we experience things, as we grow in things, the fear of the Lord has to be beneath those. It has to drive those things. Now that leads to the question, what is the fear of the Lord? When we hear that phrase, what, what do we mean by that? What does the Bible mean by that? Because I know in our culture, I know in our setting, we tend to think of fear as a negative. Well, are you scared? It's a good question we often hear in different circumstances as an expression of ridicule. And so when you hear the phrase fear, we, we often want to kind of push back from that. Sometimes we want to try and lessen it. What is fear of the Lord? Well, I think, number one, fear of the Lord is an expression of reverence and awe. Psalm 33.8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord, and let all of the inhabitants of the world be in awe of Him. That's, that's Hebrew parallelism. That's where the second statement defines the first. Okay, so let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants be in awe of Him. That tells us that the fear there is is what? It is something that, that we look at God and we are amazed. We're speechless. How do I even begin to address a God who is so big and so magnificent? You see this, this awe and this, this result of, of the fear throughout the narratives that we looked at throughout the, the passages we looked at, Joshua 4, 23 to 24, you have God's power resulting in the fear of God. In Jeremiah 10, 7, you have his, his majesty. In Revelation 14, 7, you have his justice. In 15, 4, his holiness resulting in awe of who he is. But it also plays out in, in his blessings. Psalm 67, 7. His blessings result in our awe, our fear. 1 Samuel 12, 24. His goodness results in the fear of the Lord. Psalm 134. His forgiveness. They're all reasons to fear him. Now this fear, this reverence does not conflict with intimate communion, but it does conflict with flippancy. The fear of the Lord acknowledges that God is other than. 
and acknowledges that he deserves recognition and respect on our part. But the fear of the Lord is also hatred of evil. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So it's not just our disposition toward Him, it's also what? It's connecting with Him, it's lining up beside Him to see evil, to see sin through the same lens that He does. And as such, third, fear of the Lord is obedience to God. Deuteronomy 17.19 says that He may... Learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words that this law and these, and these statutes. You fear the Lord by obeying. Genesis 22.12, Abraham proved he feared God by obeying his command to offer up Isaac. Deuteronomy 10.12 and 20, Moses told the children of Israel, Fear the Lord, walk in his ways, and love him. 1 Samuel 12.24, Samuel called Israel to fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. So fear of the Lord is not just this abstract disposition or attitude. It is a it's an active living out of our understanding of God's position as opposed to our position. It manifests itself in every aspect of our life in every act that we carry out, in every reality that we consider. So wisdom gives us a starting point, but it doesn't just do that. It, it also speaks to those times of, of struggle when our theology doesn't mask our experience. You ever found yourself there? You're living life, you're, you're going through life, and something happens, something occurs that just doesn't match up with how you understand God and how God works. Doesn't connect with what you assume would happen in that circumstance. The book of Job is essentially one long narrative and discussion about that very issue. Because Job and his friends they had a certain perspective of, of how God worked and, and what the relationship between blessing and, and obedience was. And, and they expected certain things. And if you do certain things, you're going to get certain results. And Job was living a life of righteousness, a, a life of, of commitment, a life of, of sanctification, committed to God in everything he did. And yet everything fell apart. His children were killed. His land was destroyed. His, his well-being was, was robbed of him. His health was taken away. And Job is sitting there in that moment, in that time, in the discussion with the three friends, and he's saying, I don't understand. I don't understand. This isn't the way I thought God worked. This isn't the way I thought life was supposed to happen. You ever found yourself there? God, I've, I've followed you. I've, I've been obedient in this, in this time. I've, I've done the things that I know I'm supposed to do, but man, this isn't working out the way I thought it would. Did I, did I misunderstand you, God? Did I, 
Did I misunderstand your word? Have I sinned in some way that I'm unaware of? Those are all questions Job asked. All questions his friends deal with. And at the end of the journey, what does, what does God say? God says, I'm here. He says, I'm with you. And though my ways are bigger than yours, and though there are things that I have in mind that perhaps you don't see, know that I'm good. And I love my people. Wisdom helps us take that journey. It helps us walk that path of discovery and rediscovery and relearning. Along those same lines, it helps us to define and understand what success really is. What do we mean by success? What results in that? Where, where does that come from? The writer of Ecclesiastes asked that very question. Because he says, man, I invested everywhere. I invested in learning. I invested in love. I invested in work. I invested in righteousness. I invested in all these other things. And, and here I am, and, and I'm looking at it, and what I've seen is that those investments really didn't ultimately pay off in terms of success. And then in chapter 12, as he's drawing it all together, he says, but I do know where success resides. I do know where success actually comes from, and I do know where meaning actually is found. And he says there, it's in a relationship with your Creator. Wisdom helps us to see the, the foolishness and the limitedness of what we're able to accomplish and the greatness of what God is able to accomplish. And then wisdom helps us to find righteous balance. Now, what do I mean by, by righteous balance? There is a righteousness, there is a, a mindset of righteousness who, to, uh, that, that, that is not balanced, that is not even healthy. This comes out in the wisdom literature. You see it, for instance, in Proverbs 26. Answer, not a fool according to his foolishness, lest you be like him. That's verse 4. But verse 5 then goes on to say what? Answer a fool according to his foolishness, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, wait a minute. Which is it? Am I supposed to answer the fool or ignore the fool? The Proverbs goes both ways. One says one, one says the other. And the answer is wisdom will help you play that out as to knowing when the fool needs to be answered and when the fool needs to be ignored. By what? By looking carefully at the fool. And seeing what they're doing, what they're expressing. Ecclesiastes 7 says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God 
shall come out from both of them. You ever been in that experience where you're so worried about, quote, doing the right thing that you have lost all perspective of what's good, what's enjoyable, what life was meant to. For freedom, you have been set free, Paul says. Yes, we should pursue the good. We should fear the Lord, fear God, be obedient to His ways. But if you become enslaved to that legalism, to that mindset, to, quote, playing it safe, then you're not going to live an abundant life. There is this path, there is this journey that we walk that, finds balance in this idea of righteousness and obedience versus the freedom that we have. And that, that I believe that that journey is, is found in three places, three, three things that help us find the balance. Number one, guard your heart. Keep your heart with, Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. In other words, again, remember the heart is the seat of the will. It's the decision-making process. Guard your heart. Protect those decisions. Let those decisions be guided by a commitment to God, not by a fear of outcome. Guard your heart. Secondly, trust the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all ways, acknowledge Him and what He will make your path straight. Proverbs chapter 3. So we've got to trust God. And it's in those two, those first two truths that, that we see the, the lie of the present age. The lie of the present age is simply this. Follow your heart. I, I don't think I've seen a Disney movie in the last 15 years that didn't have that as a theme. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Why would I follow something that Scripture tells me is deceitful above all other things? It lies to you. Your heart lies to you. We need to follow the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding, your own heart. Trust in His Word. Trust in His direction. Trust in His guidance. So guard your heart, trust the Lord, and then third, remember the importance of accountability. Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. Part of our fellowship here, part of our connection here is our ability to sharpen each other. For you to teach me for me to teach you, for us to learn from each other what it looks like to live a godly life, to be called out when we step away from God's desire for relationships, for God's desire for our attitudes and our mindsets. I've had the, the benefit, the privilege of experiencing that with, with some of you over the last couple of years where You've pointed out some things that were 
a part of my expressions, part of my thought life, part of my actions that were not what they should be. I'm grateful for those. We need accountability. We need someone to to tell us when we've wandered away. That's how we we walk that balance. That's how we find that that peace. We guard our heart. We trust the Lord. We hold each other accountable. And we seek to honor Him with our life and with our actions without being enslaved to a, a, a burden that He never intended us to carry. A burden that He provides for us. The way out. The way around. We hear a lot of, of truths in God's Word, especially in the wisdom literature and the Psalms. But let me ask you, what do those truths mean to you? My dad loved tools. If he saw a new gadget or a new tool or something that was pretty impressive, he bought it. And I remember as a child walking into, teenager, walking into our garage and just seeing all those tools. Do you know the funny thing is? There's a lot of them here when I were used. They sounded cool. They, they sounded kind of neat. But when he actually bought them and got them home, he realized, I really don't have much use for this. And so it sat there in the garage and got rusty and old. There's a lot of believers who, quote, love God's truths. And they like to collect them. I like this piece of trivia. I like this piece of knowledge. I like this piece of information. I like this truth about who God is. And, and we collect them. And we, quote, take them home. And we might share them once in a while, point them out every once in a while, something fascinating or new, but we don't really them or use them. They sit on the shelf, just like so many of those tools my dad bought. The truths of God's Word are not museum pieces to collect. They are instruments to be applied to our lives. God has given us the great instruments of wisdom and worship to help us to see who He is and who we are and to live a life that means something, that makes a difference. But none of that matters if we don't apply it and live it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You. I thank You for this day. Thank You for each person here. Thank you for your word, the invitation to worship, the direction of wisdom. God, I pray that you would help us to, to live that out, not just see it as truths to be collected or, or even as things to, to use against other people to keep them in line. But Lord, help us to see worship and wisdom as something to be applied to, to live a life of, 
of fulfillment, of fullness, of joy. As you intended us to. Lord, help us to acknowledge here this morning, each of us to acknowledge that that journey, first of all, begins with the fear of you. And with the acknowledgement of your position and your claim on our lives. Lord, if there's anyone here who's not experienced that moment where they've surrendered to you, where they've given themselves to you and and begun the journey of of fulfillment, of, of fullness, of abundance that you've called us to, Lord, Lord, I pray that you draw them right now. God, I also pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that you would help us to live lives of worship and wisdom, expressive of your role and your place in our lives. Use this time for your purposes. Help us to be responsive to whatever it is you're calling us to. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.